Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is part one of two episodes that tell the story of a case that was investigated three separate times over three long decades. Captain Terry returns to the podcast to tell us how she led the third and final investigation into this unsolved murder, which rocked her small town in the 1980s and had long gone cold at her police agency. The two other guest voices you'll hear are Christy and Jody, who started out as victims and ended up as victim advocates for other survivors. If not for the persistence of these three remarkable women, this case would surely have remained cold and unsolved to this day. This is part one of The Devil You Know. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them Tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes. He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities, as well as the locations of these crimes, out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you. Likewise. We have Detective Dave. Happy to be here. So happy to have you. Thanks for showing up. Absolutely. (laughs) And small town fam, I hope you're sitting down because we're super excited to have one of your fan favorites back with us, the one and only Captain Terry. Thank you for having me again. Thank you for being here. So as you will remember, Captain Terry brought us Zero Hour and The Bitter End. If you haven't heard those episodes, we highly recommend you go back and listen because they are amazing. Powerful. Really powerful. So, Captain Terry, you have brought an amazing case with you today and two guests with you this morning. I'm just going to let you take it from here and tell us all about how this case comes to you. 
So I have brought with me to talk to you about this amazing case, two amazing women, Christy and Jody, who were part of the case and very instrumental in the case. Christy, welcome. We're so happy that you're here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. And Jody, so great to have you. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for joining us. There are other women that were also instrumental, but I was lucky enough to bring these two with me today. We are going to talk about a case that started in my area, April 28th, early 1980s. So in the afternoon hours on April 28th in the early 80s, there was a call of a deceased woman found inside of a credit union. And a credit union is much like a bank, but back then they were very new. They didn't actually keep a lot of money at credit unions. They actually kept their money in the bank and went to the bank across the street and got the money and brought it over to the credit union. (laughs) So when the manager gets to the credit union, who is a female who was sick that day, she walks into the credit union and there's the counter there and there's a couple of desks behind the counter. And then there's a floor safe. And we're talking like maybe three by three. It's a small safe. It sits on the ground and she can tell that the safe is open. But obviously what she sees first is she sees a lady laying in front of the safe, blood everywhere. She actually thought she had been shot because there was so much blood and so much injury to her. She walks over into the office there and calls the police. They come out and find the victim laying there. She has some injury to her face. You could tell right away that it appears she was trying to go towards the safe and somebody struck her from behind. And then when she fell to the ground, they began striking her on the back of the head. There's quite a bit of blood, not as much as I would have originally thought, but it was a bloody mess. So I knew this case was open for a long time and that we had quite a large amount of information about it and that had actually been investigated twice. So it was unsolved? It was unsolved. So this case involves three investigations. It was originally investigated in the early 1980s, and then it was investigated again in the early 2000s. So when it came to me around 2013, I actually started looking at the case again. That's where Christy came into this. Christy is the daughter of the victim, Joyce. And Joyce is the woman who was found dead in the credit union. Yes. So Christy and her sister, Deborah, and her stepmom, Jennifer, had come to the sheriff's office and spoken with me. Christy has, for most of her life, been trying to get us to solve the case for her family. Oh, boy. Christy, how old were you when this happened? I was only 11 and a half when this happened. The initial investigation lasted for a few years, and my sister and I went through a lot of grueling interviews and intimidating experiences with law enforcement throughout all of that time. But one of the primary initial suspects was my father, who was now our only caregiver that we had left. And so through that time, we never thought he did it. We never thought he could have been the one who did it. Police tried to get us to implicate him, but we were essentially his alibis. So my sister and I served as his primary alibis, and we never gave that up. We never wavered on that all through the 80s and growing up. And it wasn't until I was separated, living on my own, and I got to age 32. And even though it was more of a gradual process, like those percolator coffee machines, it was a gradual process coming to the surface like that. But once that happened, it was like a sudden light switch in my 
whole being in my mind and my heart and everything that just went off. Literally, like my world turned upside down and everything made sense. Is this a situation where you're pulling memories and little facts and circumstances that when taken in the whole, you finally go, aha. Exactly. It's sort of like I can look back at those little moments here and there that didn't make sense. That's exactly what it was like. It was just a, a culmination of all of those points of awareness that resulted in finally being able to understand what really happened. You said originally you and your sister Deborah were his alibi. What was the alibi? We testified that he was home at the time of the murder. And did the murder take place late at night? The murder was supposedly taking place shortly after 5 p.m. So we testified that he had come home from work and that he was at home. I had a chance to read my childhood statements. And looking at my statements when I was 32, I can see myself starting from the initial interview. So this happened on a Wednesday, and I think I was initially interviewed on a Saturday. And I said very general things, like, I'm not sure what he was doing. I think he might have been home. And then I see my statements evolve over time, too. And at 5.07, he did this. And at 5.13, he did that. And six months later, I'm reciting something that I didn't even know that Saturday because we had a lot of coaching. And that's one of the aha moments that I realized. And I'm not talking subtle coaching. I'm talking, we went into our bathroom because of his fear of our home being bugged. And he would turn on the shower and run the water and the fan so we could talk. And he would ask us things after being interviewed. What did you say? Here's how you can answer it better next time. Once I grew up, I realized that wasn't even subtle coaching. And that was from your father? Yes. At the time of the actual crime, you're 11 years old-ish. Yes. And do you recall your father's affect or his posture on this? I mean, most husbands whose wives were just killed would be leading the charge to find out who did this. What was his role in the investigation? I can answer that question. And I think what I get from all of the reports and from talking to people is that he did not act like his wife had just died. Instead of coming to the police station and saying, I want this solved, when they asked him to come down and give a statement, he said, should I bring an attorney? That's a red flag. Yeah. They're like, we're just trying to solve your wife's murder here. All we need to do is get some general information from you. And right from the very beginning, he was very, I'm not going to talk to you without an attorney. And he didn't want the children to be talked to without him being present for that. And we didn't talk about her after that. It was one of those things we were sort of under the impression it's too painful for dad. So we never talked about her. We never went to her gravesite. Really? No, he never took us there. He never took us to the gravesite. And we actually only had a funeral and we didn't see the burial, but I knew the cemetery that she was buried in because her sister owned the cemetery. So I knew where it was. And there were some other friends and family members that were also buried in that cemetery. So I had sworn to myself that whenever I first had my license and the first day I ever had the car by myself, I was going to drive to the cemetery and find my mom and visit her grave. And so one day when I had an orthodontist appointment, after I left the orthodontist appointment, I was able to take the car that day. I didn't go back to school and I went to find her grave and I couldn't find it. I searched the entire cemetery frantically. I just became increasingly distraught and I finally gave up and I just sat down next to a tree and just cried. And then I drove home and my dad was very mad because school had called <laughs> saying that I had skipped school. And he was very mad, of course, because I took the car and skipped school. But he saw my face. He could tell I'd been crying. And when I explained where I'd been, he stopped being upset about me skipping school, thankfully. But that's when he told me that 
we never had enough money to buy a headstone. So she was buried there, but we didn't have enough money to buy a headstone. I would continue to go to the cemetery. And later on, I ended up seeing one day, all of a sudden there's a headstone there for my mom that I found. I guess it's important to realize that during all of this, we became estranged with my mother's side of the family because he kept us away from them too. Later on, when I was 32, I was reunited with my mom's family. And that's when I learned that they had just gotten sick of waiting for him to pay for it. And so they went ahead and provided her headstone. And it's a beautiful headstone. They did a good job. And your father's name? Mitch. So Mitch is checking some boxes for me as far as the typical controlling, isolate from one side of the family, control the information that gets out, control who gets talked to. I'm certain that Captain Terry, you recognize this. In retrospect, maybe you weren't aware of it at the time, but now all the things make sense about why this investigation gets stonewalled right off the bat. Well, and that's what I wanted to talk about just a little bit and give you some information about the first investigation that happened in the early 80s. So... I don't know how it is here where you are at, but where we're at, there's small agencies that have their own police departments that work inside of counties. So this happened in a small town that had its own police department, and then there was a county sheriff's office. So originally, the small town officers came and responded to the call. And at some point, the sheriff's office shows up too to help because that's normal. Homicides don't happen normally in our county. This is very unexpected, especially when it looks like it could be a credit union robbery. So at that point, they all show up and, you know, we all look back on older cases and some of the things that they did. And I don't understand why they didn't do some things. There was a lot of things that we would have done now, like, searched homes and searched vehicles, none of that was really done. I'm not exactly sure why. The thing that's so ironic about this case is that most of the officers died by the time we got to our investigation. Which you started in 2013, right? Yes. By that time, I had actually met with several of them through the years and talked to them about the case because I was trying to figure out how do we have this unsolved homicide? And I had known that Christy and Deborah were out there seeking justice for their mother. How does this happen? So I go back and I look at some of the documents from back then, and it appears that the police department was going in one direction and the sheriff's office was going in another direction. How do you mean? Well, the city police department was focusing more on Mitch and the county sheriff's office was focused on the robbery. And they were almost fighting against each other to the point where the district attorney is putting letters out saying, you guys are making this case worse for us because you're not working together. And one agency is feeding the newspaper details. And so it's really difficult. It gets so messed up. I don't know if you have John Doe hearings here, but they had John Doe hearings back then. Why is it called a John Doe hearing? You can remain anonymous to some degree. Right, correct. They can call people in and ask them to give testimony in front of the judge just to get information because people weren't willing to talk out in the open. So, Christy, earlier when you were speaking, you were talking about testifying and a statement that you had made. So are you talking about testifying in this John Doe hearing? It was constant. We were interviewed a lot. But yes, we also had to be interviewed during the John Doe, which was also very intimidating. And I remember the judge, now looking back, was very, very nice. But as a child, we were sitting there saying, "Uh uh-huh, 
yep, uh-huh, please say yes or no. And it felt so intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're sitting above you. Yes, it really felt intimidating. Those situations are set up for a purpose. And we had a psychological inkblot questions. I just remember being terrified to answer the wrong way and see something that I'm not supposed to see. <laughs> so this happens in April. And what ends up happening is all this time, there's this whole secret undercurrent that's going on in Mitch's life that the whole community does not know about. And that comes out in the fall of that year. Back in the 80s when Joyce was killed. Yes. It comes out that Mitch has been sexually assaulting Jody for quite a while. Jody, that lovely Jody? Yeah. Yes. And that is the catalyst that then brings him into the police department, gives them a reason to actually arrest him and bring him in. And poor Jody doesn't have any clue about what's going on. Jody's best friends with Deborah and Christy. That's how she knows the family. And she is a young girl that's being sexually assaulted by Mitch. And she believes that she's in love with him because that's the kind of grooming that he's done with her. And she holds so much of this case because she has a relationship with Mitch that involves some telephone calls that occur pretty consistently throughout the day. And the very first time that they interviewed Jody, which she can talk to you about her feelings about that. But I just want to say that back then, the way we treated victims very badly and Jody was treated horribly and not only by law enforcement, but by the news media. Jody originally tries to give Mitch an alibi. And then afterwards she realizes, I can't do this. You know, I can't be the alibi. She realizes that Mitch isn't the guy that he says he is. So Jody, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So my parents divorced when I was 11 and kind of went off and did their own thing. So us kids were left to take care of ourselves. And so I was broken up because of that. And I think that Mitch saw that brokenness in me and saw the vulnerability in me, and I was susceptible to it. And I'd spend the night at Deborah's house, and we were best friends. And it started out where he would wrestle with me and pin me to the ground and joke with me. And he was always hanging out more with us as young girls and preteens than it seemed like he hung out with the adults. We all went to the same church together. There was a lot of me spending the night there, and he was kind of like our youth leader in our church, so he would talk to us about problems that we were having. I remember he'd talk to us about not having sex before we're married and all that. And then one day he handed me a note in church, and it was kind of a riddle. It said something like, I've got a good recipe for mush, you and me. I think I'm like 12 or 13 at the time. And I got that and I thought, I don't know really how to respond to this, if he's just testing me or if it's just kind of a joke. And so I just answered back, I'm not very good in the kitchen, but I think I can handle the recipe and handed it back to him. And next thing I know, he's coming to where I'm babysitting and that was where he kissed me the first time. And it started out all very slow and it got to the point where it was a sexual relationship. And that was in October of the year before Joyce was murdered. And how old is Mitch when this is going on? He was in his 30s and Jody was 11, 12. In my world of 
sex crimes and child abuse, we talked about checking boxes earlier, and he's checking all of them. is access, isolation, testing the waters with physical contact like the wrestling. He's doing the grooming activity of jokes, probably some inappropriate conversations, trying to treat you more like an adult than he is trying to act like a kid. And then he tests the waters with this riddle just to see how you're going to react. And you recognize it, that he was testing you for something. And then it starts out slow with a kiss, simple sexual contact. Sex offenders are really good groomers. They get the trust of the community. He's a youth pastor, and now he's got access. They put themselves in positions to offend. So he's in a perfect position to offend. The way we look at it is you're completely manipulated and groomed, and you're a victim. For them, they try to treat it as a relationship so you're comfortable with it, that there's some affection there and that you won't disclose to someone else because if he's discovered, that's the end of his world. You think that would be the end of his world. And that in lies the problem. He ends up being arrested for that. And they do end up trying to talk to him about Joyce's murder using the sexual assault to Jody. It was the early 80s. I can't tell you how disgusted I am with the sentence that he got. What was it? It was two years probation, and he spent, like, maybe a month in jail. Oh, my God. So, Jody, I don't want to get into the specifics of the contact you had, but I'm assuming it was more egregious than a kiss. Yes, um... It involved sexual intercourse and other things for over a year. And I did think of it as a relationship. I I had a hard time seeing myself as a victim for many years because even the night when he was arrested for what he was doing with me, you know, my dad sat me down at the kitchen table and said, you're nothing but an adulteress. So I always saw myself as being the bad person. And ironically, I ended up going into law enforcement and through reading complaints of people I was booking and whatnot, I was like, I was groomed. I was sexually abused. And through that, then I sought counseling and found a lot of healing that way. In our state, that type of activity that you're describing, given that you're of a certain age, just the kiss in our state, that guy would get 75 months in prison, serve every day of it, up to and including the more involved sexual contact would be 300 months in prison, 25 years, and they all stack on top of each other. I mean, you're describing stuff that he would never walk free in our state nowadays. Back in the 80s, it might be one of those slap on the hand, hey, don't do this again, and everyone looks at the child as a complicit party in this. Thank God we've evolved and now recognize how ridiculous that posture was. But we still have parents who will do the victim blaming, like you're a party to this criminal offense when really you're just being taken advantage of. It's disgusting. Terry and Jody, you had mentioned the media earlier. Yep. Victim blaming, I'm guessing. Well, I was obviously a virgin back then. And like the newspaper, one of the things that I remember them saying was he was with a promiscuous teenager. And I'm like, promiscuous? I honestly didn't even know how to have sex. I didn't even have the health in school or whatever. So um, promiscuous. I'm like, no, that's what 
I became afterwards because I thought the only way I could get love in my life was to have sex. And so I had many painful relationships for a lot of years after that. And fortunately, I met my husband, who was amazing. And our relationship is built around love and not sex. How did this disclosure happen? It sounds like this is discovered after the murder, but this relationship, as they call it, had been going on for several months or up to a year. How did this come out? Through that whole year, I know my sister and my brother would say things to my dad, like, there's something going on between Mitch and Jody. You need to do something. And my dad would always put it off as like a crush. You know, you have a crush, you need to stop. I found out years later, actually this year, that a girl that I was babysitting at the time reported to police that he was at the house. She reported that Mitch was at the house while you were babysitting her? Yeah. Oh, wow. So that opened up that part of the investigation. And then they came and got me at high school and brought me to the police department. And they did the good cop, bad cop thing where one was very nice to me and one was pretty harsh and wouldn't let me see my dad. And at that time, I did give Mitch an alibi because I thought I loved him. And so I said, I knew that from the newspapers that Joyce had died shortly after five o'clock. So I said, oh no, I talked to him on the phone that night because we did have this code where I would call at like 5.05 every night and he would make sure he was the one who answered the phone in the house so we could talk without anybody knowing. But I was babysitting that night and I know he didn't answer the phone, but I said he did. Also, you've been groomed and there's loyalty to this situation. And we know that victims of abuse sexual or physical, they talk when they're ready to talk and they feel safe to talk. And this is one of those situations where it's kind of a gotcha, like, hey, we got to ask you about this and you're not ready to talk about that. Right. And so you're not going to come out and just be like, all right, now that you guys got me, here's what happened. You got to get to the point where you're able to give that kind of information. I know you did an episode called Disclosure where you talked about how children disclose. And I can tell you that Jody did not get any kind of person speaking to her that way. Nobody spoke to her in a kind way. We don't have transcripts or copies, you know, where you can actually listen to the interview. But I can just tell you that based on the reports and things that I read, that she was not spoken to kindly. She was not looked at as the victim. She was taken advantage of by law enforcement because of her age. And I feel badly about that. When I hear good cop, bad cop for that interview, it's infuriating. It is. That is not the time to be doing good cop, bad cop. And I I apologize on behalf of law enforcement and men, male detectives. I'm guessing they were both men. Yes. And on top of that, you're dealing with Mitch, who is willing to take his own daughters into the bathroom and make sure that they answer questions the way he wants them to answer them. So... It's absolutely understandable that you would provide an alibi because this man has a very firm grip over the young women in his life. And you guys will both understand this, Dave and Dan, when I tell you this. The other problem with this case is it revolves around a church. And Mitch has manipulated the people in the church, like those sex offenders do, to see him only as a good person. And that's part of the problem here. So... The whole alibi, besides the alibi that's going on at home, is then that Mitch goes to church that night and he ends up being there when Joyce's body's found. 
but he has manipulated the whole thing. So when they tried to talk to them in the early 80s, the church came in around Mitch and they would not talk. They would not give information. That was the problem with the first investigation is that it closed down and became cold because the church surrounded Mitch. And when I talked to them 35 years later, they just didn't want to believe that they let the wolf in and that as the sheep, they didn't see him. And now stepping back, they're like, oh my gosh, the wolf was among us and we didn't even know it. And we allowed him to prey on our children. Sure, that's a pretty shameful revelation. It's pretty painful. Was anybody else found to be a victim of Mitch's sexual assaults? One of the things we did think was that we would find other victims, that some other people would come forward, like from that church group. We never did. You know, it's not going to be just Jody, but we didn't find anybody. But it's real difficult for victims to come forward. Maybe they're not ready. Correct. Over the many decades of this investigation, did you ever find victims of Mitch's sexual abuse outside the church? Yes. He ends up having another juvenile victim spend some more time in prison for that victim. So that begs the question, is there a statute of limitations on some of these sex abuse crimes? In the 1980s, there was, yes. Our law is whatever the law was at the time is what the law is. So back then, there was no child sexual assault. It was only sexual assault. So the statute of limitations would have run out after the felony sexual assault statute ran out. So you can't convict him of those things, but it builds a pattern of behavior and it paints a picture of he was a predator. Mitch was a predator. That's one of the things that I look at this case and all the stuff that we've talked about, the domestic violence, which I know that we haven't talked at all about any physical domestic abuse to Joyce, but there was some obvious abuse going on there. And then the abuse to Jody, the sexual assaults to Jody, and then just the way that he manipulated the whole community, the whole church. How big is your town where this happened? Well, at the time, my graduating high school was a combination of five different towns. Maybe a better way is how many traffic lights are in your town? There was only two back then, two or three. Three. Between the two towns. Yeah, because they were right next to each other. So two towns next to each other, and you had a total of three traffic lights. Yeah. That's pretty small. So everyone knows everyone, and presumably most of the town became familiar with this whole situation. Yeah. So how did Mitch end up getting arrested? So he was also my dad's best friend. Mitch was your dad's best friend. Yes. And the day after the police interviewed me, we were supposed to all meet for pizza that night. Who's we? Christy's family, my family, and other people from our church. And my dad brought me home, sat me down on the table, and called me the adulteress. And he said, now you're staying here, and I'm going to meet Mitch at the church. This is before the police have arrested him. And so Mitch meets him at the church. Well, the church is like a mile from our house. And he gets somebody to come stay with me and says, you make sure she stays here. Well, I'm not having that. And so I take my motorcycle to the church. And I remember Mitch telling my dad, my love for you is genuine, telling my dad that. Not me. He's telling my dad that. And why my dad isn't beating the crap out of him, I have no idea. I do have to say, though, that my dad did ask for my forgiveness later in life. And I think he carried that failure to parent with him for a lot of years. But Mitch asked my dad, can I just take Jody downstairs and talk to her in the basement? And my dad again says yes. And so Mitch takes me downstairs and we get in the child's classroom and 
I'm thinking he's going to tell me how much he loves me and it's okay. And I think that was my first perk in the percolator, as Christy talked about, that something's not right here. Because he said, what did you tell the police? I need to know everything you told the police. And I told him, I love you, and I gave you an alibi. And I told him that I was talking to you that night, and there was no profession of love for me or anything like that. It was just, what did you tell the police? And he was angry at me. Christy, I'm having a conflict. Mitch is your father. I hate him for all these things that he's done to Jody on top of what he's done to your mother. But at the same time, I recognize this is your father. Like, the conflict that you must be feeling throughout all this when you became aware of what was happening with Jody was going through your head. Back then, I knew what was happening with Jody, but again, I didn't really understand sex yet. But so he used to talk to Jody, as she alluded to, they had these prearranged times, I guess. They would talk and he would talk on the phone in our basement. And I remember walking upstairs and my mom was at the stove cooking and she asked me, what's your dad doing? And I I didn't want to tell her because I knew it should upset her and I knew it's not right. I didn't really know much more than that, but I knew enough to know that. But I did tell her and she was very gracious. She would never talk negatively about him in front of my sister or I. But I think my sister saw more of their relationship because I was the lucky one. I was younger and he used my older sister to act as a reason to be with Jody, And so... I got to stay and hang out with my mom. But my sister would go ride in a car with them where she'd watch them sit in the front seat together as she's in the back seat and watch them, you know, be a couple, essentially. And so my older sister definitely saw the brunt of this. But the night that he was arrested, we were all supposed to meet, like you had mentioned, Jody. And uh, Jody and her family never showed up. And so we went home and my dad said to us, I could be arrested tonight. And of course, I presumed he meant for my mother's murder. And he said, I could be arrested tonight, so if anything happens, call your uncle right away and you don't have to say anything and that kind of thing. And sure enough, about a half an hour later, it's about 10.30 at night and the police come to our house and they arrest him. And of course, I'm still thinking it's about the murder. And then I got, along with my sister, taken into questioning that night, separated, of course, with good cops and bad cops on both sides for us, both, and no other representation, really. I mean, I think there was a social worker there, but no family or anything. But then we were questioned quite late in the evening, and again, it was all about the murder. So it wasn't until the following day that I realized it had anything to do with Jody. What's the timeline here? Six months. Six months to his arrest for what he was doing to Jody. That's right. And so after the arrest for the abuse to Jody, they try to use that to get him to confess, but he doesn't. And as I said to you, then the community has all kind of closed around him. And because Jody has originally said one thing and then said something else, and because of the way that they interviewed her and didn't give her the time to explain, she does end up going back to law enforcement and saying, look, I did tell a lie. And this is why I told the lie. But now I'm telling the truth. That's the only time that I ever lied was that time. And that's also because after he's arrested, I also find out that he's having another intimate relationship with another woman. A juvenile or an adult? An adult. So all of a sudden, it's like the realization is coming on to me that he's just used me. I'm like, I need to come clean and tell everything. And keep in mind, for the last year, 
I've been lying to everybody, you know, because you can't go meet a grown man. You can't say, Dad, I'm going to meet Mitch. So you're lying, and it is so not how I was brought up. I really wanted to be that good Christian girl who doesn't lie. And so I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to come clean, tell them everything I know. And I did that. And then I also testified in the John Doe hearing as well. Truthfully or? Truthfully. Okay. She was truthful every time after the first interview. Got it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360-degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024, and Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So, Jody, back then, and even within the last several years, I know certain detectives that would just dismiss this second 
approach to law enforcement where you're like, listen, I was untruthful the first time, but now I'm ready to tell the truth. And it's this kind of archaic way of officers and detectives not understanding the disclosure process. Because victims disclose when they're ready and not before. Right. And you also have those two different agencies, two different theories going against each other. So they do this now for like three years. And at the end of it, it's done. They fought against each other for so long. They've created things that don't fit together for so long that then the case goes cold and it's closed. Half of it stays in the small town and half of it stays at the county. And that's it. It just sits there for like 20 years going ice cold and unresolved. Yes. So how does it get picked up again? So at age 32, that's when I first reached out to law enforcement proactively. And at that time, I contacted Captain Terry's office. She was not captain at the time. This was back in the early 2000s. And I had never, I guess, even realized that I had the ability to ask them to keep working on my mom's case. I didn't realize I had a voice as a victim and that they would feel obligated to listen to me. So once I realized that, I basically never stopped hounding them. (laughs) So they did conduct a second investigation at that time. And that primarily focused around me wearing a wire and confronting my father, which was the scariest thing I've ever had to do in my whole life. How do you even do that? It's just (laughs) terrifying even to imagine. I think I became fairly skilled at being dissociative when I have to be and compartmentalizing. So as much as it was scary, not doing something felt scarier. And I couldn't rest without justice for my mom. So I just did it. <laughs> you, just, you just go through it. So it was really hard. And I knew it wasn't going to work because I became aware of antisocial personality disorder, psychopath, whichever term you want to use for it. But my father just does not feel empathy. I learned that finally, that he's not the same as other people. He doesn't feel the same. He doesn't feel guilt. He doesn't feel remorse the same way. So I knew trying to elicit some kind of confession was not going to work, but that's all that was being offered at the time in this investigation as far as choices in a path was concerned. And so I said, okay, does it have to be me? Can it be anyone else? (laughs) Anyone else but me? But I finally just went and did it. Was he suspicious? I think so. Yeah. Luckily, he didn't ask me to show anything or lift my shirt or prove you don't have a wire on, but I do think so. I think he was always suspicious. I have not talked to him since late 2001 without the context of wearing a wire, and that's only been maybe a handful of times now. But each time he didn't kick me out because that wouldn't look very good. He threatened to when I kept pushing things pretty far, but he never actually confessed. I mean, his behavior would sound weird and be obvious maybe to detectives and to other people, but it wasn't objective, conclusive, non-circumstantial evidence. How do you break the ice in a situation like that? Do you just come out and say it? Like, what happened to mom, dad? Well, that's pretty much the coaching I got from the detectives at the time was, hey, I'm grown up now and it's time you're going to answer for this. I realized things that I didn't realize. So basically I told the truth. I just approached it with telling the truth and you owe me answers and I didn't get anywhere. But So I have a few procedural questions in our state for me to wire up a witness or a third party after write a very specific warrant to intercept interpersonal communications. Is that the case in your state? No, we are one party consent. So as long as one person knows that they are being recorded in the conversation, 
that's all it takes for us. So anybody can record anybody as long as one person in the room knows that the recorder's on. Damn. It is nice. It's very nice. It'd be so nice. So Christy, you wearing a wire kicks off the second investigation. Yes. Terry, are you part of that at this point? No. The detective that's working the case at that time happened to be one of my mentors for a long period of time. He brings everything together, which is a monstrous amount of stuff. And they actually had another person that they were looking at that they thought could have done the bank robbery because it was a bank robbery in their mind because the money that was in Joyce's hand was missing. So one agency was looking at it as a robbery and one agency was looking at it as a husband that killed a wife. So then my mentor gets it once he talks to Christy and he talks to the district attorney at the time. And the district attorney says, the only way this is going to go anywhere is if you get a confession. That's in his mind. That's the only way it's going to work. So he works with Christy as she talks about doing the taped conversations, which we know is not going to work with this kind of a person. Yeah. So like I said, although great efforts were made for probably almost close to three years in the second investigation, they were still looking for the smoking gun, right? And they were worried about double jeopardy. Dan, Dave, why don't one of you tell our listeners just to be sure exactly what double jeopardy is? Well, you can only be tried once. So you only get one shot at these guys. You can't have a situation where you arrest someone, you charge them, you go through the whole process, go through a trial, they get acquitted. Later on, you get more evidence. And now you go, well, now we got enough to convict him. Let's go through another trial. That's not how it works. Uh, The government gets one shot at you on a prosecution. And is that true with all crimes, murder, burglary, robbery, everything? Yeah. It's part of your constitutional rights. That's right. And they didn't want to take the risk with a circumstantial case. And so it went cold again and it got closed and it went cold again. So I continued to follow up with law enforcement whenever there was a change in the leadership, whenever there was a new captain or a new detective. And I would continue to follow up, but they just kept saying, there's nothing more we can do. So I had almost given up and I had at that point decided I got to let this go. And I had people in my life who loved me very much telling me, let it go. You can't do anything. So stop. Stop trying. That's easy for people to say. Right. And so around 2013, 2014, that's when Christy reaches out to my agency again. And that's when the third investigation starts based on an idea that Christy had. And I'll let you talk a little bit about that, Christy. Sure. So I had well-intended people saying, please stop. You're just going to hurt yourself if you keep pursuing this. You have to find a way to let it go. And I kind of tried to do that. And it's not like I obsessed about it constantly. It's just I couldn't just stop. I couldn't just let it go. So every now and again, I'd still reach out to the law enforcement agency up there. And then I started to watch another true crime reality show. It's a show that just focused on cold cases. And I just sat there so jealous. (laughs) I'd watch every episode. I just wish that they could help with my mom's case. I just wish that they could help. But I still felt that there was a reach because those cases are somehow different than my mom's case. But then they shared an example on the show of how easy it is to break one pencil. Look at this pencil as a piece of circumstantial evidence. I can just break it like that, no problem. I put two of them together. I can still break it. I put 20 of them together and... You might break one or two on the outside, but it's so strong when you have so many pieces of evidence there. And that's how the whole idea that a circumstantial case is like a dirty word. It doesn't have to be that way. They can actually be very strong cases depending on your perspective. 
And that motivated me again to try one more time. And now there was different leadership in place there as well. So I actually put together a formal proposal requesting that they reach out and work with this team. Reach out and work with the TV show team? That's right. My first visit with them, I got completely shut down. They said, no, we do not want to sensationalize this case. I tried one more time after that. And that's when Captain Terry was in the room for the first time. And who didn't want to sensationalize the TV show or the police department? The police department. You have to understand that it's true. Unsolved cases are not things that you want to talk about because it's a failure. Mm -hmm. It is. In some way, you feel that you failed. And in this case, our agency has tried twice now. And I've heard about this case. Like I said, I had talked to some people about this case. And for all of us, it's even a bigger failure because we're all like, he did it. He did it. We're all screaming like, he did it. It's not like, <laughs> it's not like this is a person that we're never going to find and we need DNA. It's not like that. It's like we all knew and they even knew. So we don't want to sensationalize this case because we know who did it, but we can't get him. Well, and it's, you're going to have a television show come in and expose all the ways you failed. Yes. And not the good work you did. It's all the bad work you did. Well, that's what you would think at the time, too. We have to release all the documents from before. And first of all, I don't know how many of you have ever looked at some cases from the 1980s. Yeah. The way they did cases back then is very different than now. Like, instead of putting dates on the top of the sheets, you know, like when the interview happened, they don't put anything like that. They only put the name and it could be like John Smith. You got nothing else. Like, who is this? And living in a small town, a lot of people have the same name. You have to go back to these people. And honestly, this is some of the stuff I did was I said, did you live in this area at this time? And they were like, oh, yeah. I'm like, OK, you're the guy I need to talk to. So when we did finally decide to do this case, what ended up happening was Christy had come to us. That sheriff at that time was not open to it. The sheriff changed. And at that point, when I was promoted to be in charge of the investigative division, I went to the new sheriff and I said, Let's do this. Let's just try one more time. I told Christy and Deborah, I'll try, but this will be it. Either way, it's going to be done. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Christy, where is your sister Deborah in all of this? You seem to be the catalyst going back to law enforcement. Can you speak to that? Or Yeah, um, she is further away, so she was not as engaged or involved. But she was willing to go and record with me one time with my father, which was helpful. I mean, it didn't yield much, but at least I think it helped her even just be able to confront him as well, just to go through that experience. As hard as it seemed after the fact, it was good to have confronted him. And then she was definitely part of the third investigation. So let's talk a little bit again about the second investigation and what we got out of that before we move on to the third real quick. So the second investigation, like I said, was focused on just dealing with the case as far as getting a confession. And that just didn't happen. 
But what we did get there is that the detectives at that point reached out to Christy, reached out to Deborah, and they reached out to Jody again. And they all came together and started talking. We never would have got to where we were if they hadn't opened up the 2002 investigation. The other thing is Jennifer, who is Christy's stepmom, she was really involved with that too at the time. She tried to record some conversations. So we did have those conversations, but the one thing that did happen is they tried to use some other family members and those other family members told Mitch that he was being recorded. Oh, what? <laughs> so yeah, so we tried to reach out to his family and get them involved in it. And so then they told him that we were recording. And so that kind of took away the recording part of it. It's not shocking at all to people in law enforcement that that would happen. It doesn't shock me at all. People circle their wagons around one camp or the other. They just make their mind up and they're like, nope, I'm not open-minded to that. It happened the way I think it happened. And... I'm in his camp, and they let the cat out of the bag. Well, what about you, Christy? Did Mitch ever come back to you and ask you about wearing a wire? No, Mitch has not contacted me. He wasn't that way anyway in the first place. But basically, it split our family apart. It fractioned our family into the people who wanted to believe he was not capable of doing this and somehow would still need to stay with their existing beliefs despite the new information. And to this day, his older brother... He was in law enforcement and highly successful in law enforcement. This is Mitch's brother? Yes. And he actually was inspired to go into law enforcement after my mother's murder because of how the police treated everything and the disparity he saw between the agencies and things. When I called him when I first realized this in my 30s, he was right there for me and he never wavered. And he's lost his entire family because he's taken the side of the truth. Mitch's brother wasn't even allowed to go to their own mother's funeral because he took the side of the truth. He plays a very important part in this case, too. So our dad told us that Jody approached him. She walked into his room naked. What's a man supposed to do? That's what your dad said. Yes, yeah. That's what we learned as 11-year-olds, that that's how men are. And when I, in the early 2000s, while things were percolating, the first thing that I realized about him was that he was a pedophile. I didn't realize the murder until after I first understood what is a pedophile and that my father actually is one. And once I realized that and I was talking to him about the second juvenile offense that occurred. The one after Jody. Yes, yeah. And he said the same thing about the first one. I said, I'm not going to allow you to tell me that this is somehow not your fault like you did back with what happened with Jody. And he repeated the exact same thing. What's a man supposed to do? I'm like, tell her no. Tell her to get out of your room. I think that's when he started to realize I was no longer under his control. Right. Mitch realizes you're not buying his bullshit anymore. This is right out of the sex offender playbook. I know. I'm telling you. And that's how I knew him. I monitored sex offenders in the early 2000s. That's been my thing for most of my career is monitoring sex offenders in my agency. So I spent a lot of time dealing with Mitch as a sex offender. I walked through his home. Like I'd go out with a probation agent on Halloween. But Mitch's textbook, sex offender, I mean, he is one of those ones where it's like scary. Everything that we learn about, everything that we don't want to believe that the wolf really is, it is. It's one of those, if Hollywood came up with one of these scenarios and he started checking all these boxes, I'd be like, well, I mean, that'd be like a wish list of sex offender behaviors. But he's got all of them. Yes. Every single one of them, including the, well, she seduced me. Victim blaming, like, this was her idea. 
and I'm the victim here. Yes, and when he tells us that story, Jody does that the night of his wife's death. Oh my God, you mean he says the night that Jody walks into his bedroom naked is the same night Joyce is murdered? Yes. And he says that I'm 18 years old when it happened. Yes, I always believed that Jody was 17, just about to turn 18, and it's just a technicality. That's what I've always grown up believing. I was protected from reading the newspapers back then. I'm in my early 30s, so I decided I'm going to find out what was reported about my mom's murder. You know, I had to go to the state capitol because it was on microfiche, and I started looking in the 1980s time frame. It was reported for about a year in the paper, and I looked through every single article that I could find, and I literally almost got sick when I read Jody's age in the newspapers because I realized, oh my gosh, it wasn't a 32-year-old with an 18-year-old. It was a 33-year-old with an 11, 12, 13, and 14-year-old. I can't. That's so young. And I'm assuming this is a situation where uh, prior to actually physically abusing you that he's spent a period of time grooming you. Is that right? Yes. I, I, I was just stunned and shocked. It's so strange. My dad could have told me the sky was purple and I would have believed him, even though I saw blue. Sure. Um, Jody, what was it like for you at school? Once the paper had treated you so unfairly and the news was out, I can't imagine it was easy for you. It was hard and um, I ended up moving to my mother's, which was luckily a state away. So that was good, but I was still pretty broken. So I turned to alcohol to try and deal with that. And, you know... When Christy talked about learning about the sociopathic personality and the psychopath, well, I wasn't that. I had a conscience. And so the realizations are coming. And for years, I took on that guilt. Like, maybe if I wasn't in the picture, Joyce would still be alive. And it wasn't until after the second investigation that Christy and I talked and I got a lot of healing from both girls, Christy and Deborah, because they said, you know what, if it wasn't you, it would be someone else. I still recall Christy saying that to me, and that was so meaningful to me because I didn't think of it that way. In law enforcement, you kind of learn that a pedophile is a pedophile. They're going to be that way. I don't see much of a cure for it. Right. You weren't just the lucky one. Right. You know, but I was a lucky one. And I've always felt like I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor because, you know what, there was a time when he brought me out in the woods. He got angry with me because I was kind of confronting him. And I'm lucky to be alive. And I know that because I was a liability to him. I know that now. I didn't back then. Is this before or after the murder? This was after the murder, shortly before he was arrested. You really thought that out in the woods he might kill you? I don't know. And so I was like, you said you were marrying me and aren't you going to talk to my dad? And I had even asked him before, even the night of the murder, and this is something I should say too, because the night of the murder, we all went out to the house, to Christie's house. My dad, my brother, my whole family went, a lot of the people from our church, because it was a church night. And I remember not seeing Mitch, but I remember all of us crying, Deborah and Christy, and all of us were crying about Joyce being murdered. And I was wondering where he was, but they took him down in the basement. Our pastor did and some of the men from our church. And then at one point he came up and was in the living room and I looked at him and I said, are you okay? And he got this look on his face that I will never forget. And he said, well, I'm footloose and fancy free. 
And that's what he's saying to me at the same time he's probably telling them, poor me, my wife was just murdered. But Mitch was cold to Joyce. He said things to me about her that were just brutal, that no man should say about their wife. God. And Christy and Jody, tell us a little bit about what Joyce was like. My memories of Joyce was that she was very quiet, that she loved her daughters, that she loved her husband, that she loved Mitch. And I remember many times when I'd go there to spend the night, she'd be sitting on the couch doing needlepoint. And she did not deserve this. She did not deserve what happened to her at all. Yeah, by all accounts from what adults have told me, she was very kind, very loving. Just had a warm, loving smile about her and the bluest of eyes. I remember being told that by somebody, too, that she had very, very strikingly blue eyes. As her daughter, I remember just doing typical things that mothers and children would do, waking up really early to make cinnamon rolls or going berry picking. (laughs) Or, you know, we did a lot of canning together. And yes, she loved to embroider. And I have a lot of her work in my home still. But she was very kind. She helped teach some Sunday school at the church. And I remember, too, my sister and I, every Easter had our traditions with her. She had that over the holidays, the traditions that she would carry. So it was definitely a big loss. Yeah. And Christy, didn't you even have kind of a sense of foreboding back then? Because didn't she send you and Deborah a card? That's right. On Valentine's Day, she wrote my sister and I this wonderful letter. And essentially, summarizing it, it said, mothers and daughters don't always have enough time together. And I haven't told you enough how much I love you. And I think she had a sense from what I've been told to that something may be coming. And that letter comes a couple of months before she's killed. Yes. Yeah. So my sister and I lost our mom at such a really critical time in our life, as you might expect as an 11 and 13 year old going through puberty, for example, all of that. It was just a really, really rough time for us to lose her. And then we didn't really get to grieve her properly either. We got thrust right in from losing her at that time into being central in the investigation of her murder. And it was just a really difficult thing to go through during that time. I can't imagine. Um, So I have two questions. Terry, you said that Jennifer is Christy's stepmom. So Christy, how long after your mother was murdered did your father remarry? And two... I'm so curious about a woman who marries a man who's been suspected of murdering his first wife. Good questions. So as you know, after he was arrested for Jody, Mitch had a small punishment, but it was more like four or five months of jail time with Huber. What's that? So in some states, Huber says that any person sentenced to county jail with Huber basically means they can go out during the day on a work release program, either for employment or to go do community service. That's like not being in jail. Yep. Yeah, you're just staying overnight. Gee whiz. And my sister and I went to live with Mitch's older brother during that time. So he did get to leave to go to work, but he was in jail for about four to five months. So that got him out somewhere around spring. And right when he got out is when he met Jennifer. But he met Jennifer through a high school friend in a town much farther away that did not know about my mother's murder because news didn't spread the same way. It was very well known locally, but not by Jennifer. And he actually used an alias when he first met her. He used a fake name. And so for a while, she thought he had a different name than Mitch, but then she only knew what Mitch told her. So it was poor Mitch, poor Mitch. And, you know, 
He was treated so badly by law enforcement that he was going to sue law enforcement. And at one point, he actually did initiate a lawsuit against law enforcement for being treated poorly in naming some of the poor treatment that allegedly my sister and I were given. When we didn't really hold up to being able to testify to that, he did drop the lawsuit. So she had no idea. And she was very young. She was actually 18. Oh. And they got married when she was 19. So she was at my eighth grade graduation. My mom died in sixth grade and she was there as his wife in eighth grade. So they got married in less than a year. She moved up to where we lived really soon and then moved in with us and then they got married. But she was 19 when they got married and now he would have been 34 or so, 34, 35. So she didn't know who she was marrying until it was way too late. How long did that marriage last? About 20 years, I want to say. And when I first came to my realization of who he is and what he'd done, I tiptoed around bringing it up to her because we were very close. She was only seven years older than me. Right. So even though I looked at her as a stepmother figure, she wasn't a decision maker. It was always my dad's decisions about things. And she was more of a friend. And so as I got older and older, we became more of friends. So one day I just finally broached the topic with her and she was so relieved because she said, I was thinking that too. That your dad had killed your mom. Right. Jody, you had mentioned how he was cruel to my mother and Jennifer, experienced a lot of the same types of cruelty and control and fear from him. And I know one of my mom's best friends had finally expressed that too, like the night before her murder. So it took a lot for Jennifer to leave your dad. Yes, and she was brave to leave. I remember the night she left, I called home and I didn't know she was leaving because I lived six hours away. I didn't know she was leaving. And I would have found out probably the next day, but I did not know that. And I called home and I couldn't get a hold of her. And I knew generally what was going on. And so I figured she tried to leave and I wasn't getting an answer. And I was so scared about it. I actually called the local town police department to tell them how scared I was that my father could have done something to Jennifer. And so they went out to check. And then I got a call from law enforcement. They helped her get out and leave and stuff. Your welfare check actually helps Jennifer get out safely. I think that was already going on. The welfare check, it was just what I initiated. Law enforcement was already working with her to get her out. Oh, lovely. We've learned this in this podcast and just anecdotally on true crime shows that the leaving, that's the most dangerous time frame for domestic violence victims to get out. And I don't even know if there was domestic violence, physical domestic violence. But just the leaving, especially with someone like Mitch, is that he controls everything in his life and... You don't do things to him. He does things to others. And it's so ironic because when we did the third investigation, we found out that is what happened here. Mitch found out that Joyce was going to leave and tell. She was going to tell about Jody. She had talked to somebody and there was a discussion about Jody and Mitch's relationship. And that if he did not end that relationship and work on their relationship, that she was going to leave. And we didn't find that out until the third investigation. Powerful testimony from Christy and Jody puts Mitch in Captain Terry's crosshairs as the third investigation into Joyce's murder finally gets underway. Don't miss part two of The Devil You Know, where three women simply refuse to quit until justice is served. Part two drops tomorrow right here on your favorite podcast network. See you there.
Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soren Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.